Hello, and welcome to Think Business Futures. I'm your host, Stefan Postuma, coming to you from 2SER Studios in Sydney on the Gadigal land of the Eora Nation, broadcast right around Australia on the Community Radio Network and around the world wherever you get your podcasts. Each week, we take a closer look at the business issues making up the news. This program is made possible by the assistance of the UTS Business School. Women's roles in leadership in both business and politics have evolved dramatically since the beginning of the 20th century. Feminism's second wave facilitated progress, but still we continue to see a dramatic gender disparity in both spheres. So what will it take to further this progress? And what does real progress look like in relation to not only having more women in leadership roles, but having a diversity of women in these positions? On today's show, we take a look at women in business leadership and compare the history, culture, barriers and opportunities to that of women in political leadership. I'm joined here in the studio by Claire Wright, business historian at the University of Technology Sydney's Business School, and we're joined remotely by Blair Williams, research fellow and lecturer with the Global Institute for Women's Leadership at the Australian National University. Claire and Blair, thanks so much for joining me here on Think Business Futures. Thank you so much for having us. Yeah, it's great to be here. Now, Claire, you've been researching women in leadership in the corporate world and Blair, yourself researching women in political leadership. We'll try to keep relatively business centric on this show. But to start with, Claire, tell us a bit about your research and why it's important to study women's roles in corporate Australia. Uh So I think that one of the things about women in leadership is that it's a big topic, obviously. Uh, We are very interested in women in political leadership and women in corporate leadership. Uh, But what's really lacking from the conversation at the moment is a historical understanding, uh, not only of how current women leaders have progressed throughout their lifetime into these leadership roles, but also the structural barriers that have kept women out of leadership roles in the past uh, and the continuity between different types of corporate women. And so the sort of research that I've been doing uh, has been taking an integrated approach to looking at women in leadership, looking at the sort of women that had uh, corporate influence, I say, uh, in the early and mid 20th century, and then the sorts of women who had formal leadership roles later and, and what was similar about them and what sort of Uh, things that they did to respond to their environment and uh, overcome these structural barriers to influence a very male-dominated sector. I'm interested in the two phases that you mentioned in your paper. Let's talk about the second phase of women's roles in corporate Australia. Tell us about what you found. I think one of the really interesting things that we can contrast is the quite late start to uh, women in corporate leadership compared to political leadership. You know, so women were being elected to public office for 40 plus years before they were on a board of a top Australian company. And so from around the 1980s, uh, various women were appointed to company boards and there was a very quick catch-up process, even though it started quite late. So uh, the number of women in corporate leadership uh, increased by about tenfold in the decade between 1986 and 1997, and then we've had a doubling of that number every decade since then. So the number of sort of seats held by women has really increased a lot. Uh, we're now sitting at you know somewhere in the 30 30s percent um, of women on top company boards. Uh, what I've also found is that the sorts of women that are occupying these positions are very homogenous in their sort of professional background, in their personal background and things like that. And also that certain privileged high profile women are accruing a, a lot of board memberships more so than the average sort of Peter and Michael on company boards. Okay, well, one of the things that you identify that contributed to this increase in women at at a high level of influence in corporate Australia is second wave feminism. 
maybe Blair, it's an opportunity for you to tell us a bit about what that is for those who don't know much about the second wave and also a bit about how that influenced women in politics in Australia as well. Yeah, so second wave feminism um, really got big in Australia in the 1960s and 1970s and was very much about fighting for women's rights in the workplace, women's bodily autonomy, like abortion rights, birth control, that, that kind of stuff. Yeah, as well as fighting for policy rights, so for for governments to actually recognise women um, and the, I guess, unique or diverse needs that women have, which we very much saw in um, the Whitlam government, for example. I mean, that's kind of the broad overarching idea of second wave feminism, but there's also a critique of second wave feminism that um, a lot of what they were fighting for was very much for middle class white women. A lot of Aboriginal activists have critiqued second wave feminism for being too white. You know, they said that while you know these white women who are fighting for rights to abortion and birth control, Aboriginal women were fighting for the right to keep their children. So it's interesting to see second wave feminism, what they're fighting for, and also see it through that lens of criticism through those who were completely othered from the movement or forgotten by the movement or asked to separate their race or their class or their sexuality from their gender to participate in that movement. What sort of an influence did it have on politics? Yeah, it had a massive influence on politics. Um, you know, a range of uh, feminist groups, such as the Women's Electoral Lobby or WELL, were very politically active and trying to not only get more women in politics, but also fight for gender equality policies, for the gender mainstreaming. So to not only have women as this like add-on category, but to have their interests and their rights throughout um, these policies. And we really saw some massive legislations being passed in that era or because of second wave feminists like the Sex Discrimination Act, um, as well as creating the first office for women uh, under the Whitlam government, which really gave an, an opportunity for women's rights to be front and centre of what's happening in politics or what was happening in politics. But prior to that, they were quite sidelined and their issues were not really seen as something like mainstream. <laughs> Claire, tell us about some of the other things that sort of contributed to an increase in women's roles in powerful positions in corporate Australia, you know, from, from the 60s, 70s and through to the 80s and today in that second phase that you mentioned? Sure. So one of the interesting things about um, business leadership is that it has a really, really long pipeline. So in order to become a corporate leader, you often need like 30 years of career development from education to entry level to management roles to eventually to an executive role and then from there to non-executive director positions. So this takes a really long time, which means that the current corporate leaders that we have today are really the product of the material conditions of their work from 30 years ago. Even though feminism itself has moved on substantially over the last 30 and 40 years, the women in power now are second wave feminist beneficiaries. And so what the second wave feminist movement did is actually allowed women in the professions valued by the corporate sector, so accounting, law, investment banking, that sort of thing. Uh, It allowed them to stay in the workforce after marriage Expanded childcare funding allowed them to sort of combine work and family in different ways than was previously um, available. And it allowed them to be promoted to management roles and executive roles through a lot of affirmative action and hiring and promotion programs to uh, overcome some of the bias in, in those spheres. And so it actually put women on the career pipeline that allowed them to be uh, appointed to higher level and sort of leadership roles. Okay, so... There's some progress, obviously, we've just we've talked about, but I think that a part of your work, Claire, and as well, Blair, it's obvious that there is still a long way to go. Let's talk for a while about sort of the barriers and, and the things that make it difficult for, for women at the moment to 
possess positions of leadership in both politics and in business because I think that they will intersect quite a lot. Blair, what are some of the things, some of the biggest challenges that, that we're still facing now? In terms of politics, I think one of the biggest barriers is uh, not having gender parity. <laughs> one of the biggest barriers is the political parties themselves, I think. And when I say political parties, plural, the AOP does have a gender quota policy and has since 1994. And we really saw that um, result in a massive influx of women in the Labour Party. So we really saw the, the results of gender um, quotas and, and, and the effects of that. The Liberal Party and the National Party do not have quotas and they continue to remain firm against quotas and we've seen you know the number of women in those parties stagnate at around 20 ish percent give or take over the last yeah probably the last two decades around 20 percent so i think those things really inhibit i mean obviously inhibit women from actually being in politics to even get to the position to be leaders Hmm. so you know as claire was saying in terms of business you know what we're seeing now is really the result of 30 years ago of women you know being in those roles to be able to you know progress through that pipeline if, we ha- if you have a lack of women in politics, then you don't have as many of those women in that pipeline to become viable for leadership positions. We really need to address that. But also, as we saw last year, uh, one of the massive barriers is the toxic culture of parliament itself. And like business, I mean, we, you know, we heard from Malcolm Turnbull and Julia Banks, both very much business people, last year and this year say that they were shocked when they went to politics because they said it was about 30 years behind the business world in terms of the the cultural norms and the toxic nature of what those relations looked like. So we really need to change that, the parliamentary culture, to make sure it's a safe workplace for everyone in that building, to encourage more women to want to enter the, play, um, enter the building in the first place. So we need change from parties to actually prioritise having more women. We need change in the culture. We need change in terms of how politicians are seen. They are workers in a workplace. They're not infallible people. So I think those are the things that we really need to um, focus on in politics to have, you know, to have more gender equality. Claire, it's interesting to sort of linger on this point now. Is Mm. this something that you see when it comes to, you know, the barriers for women entering corporate leadership and the culture in the business world as well. I suppose in the business world, we're talking about a, a vast spectrum across industries. Mm. But uh, yeah, how do you see this? I think that the main barriers in business, like obviously we don't live in a perfect mm. world and, and while it may be um, good in some ways and have improved greatly in, in some ways, uh, it doesn't mean that uh, we have a perfect system. I think one of the main barriers is the fact that because of such a long pipeline for leadership roles in business, and the fact that there is a reasonably rigid set of boxes that you need to tick in order to be elected as an executive or something like that. Things like childcare exert considerable influence over the career pipeline of a corporate woman. So the time taken out for childcare, the fact that women are still seen as primary carers and the sort of restrictions on part-time work and whether part-time work is allowed or whether your career will suffer if you take on part-time work, things like that actually do really influence the career trajectory you have later. And so something as simple as the provision of childcare within the workplace or by the government or by whoever um, actually is really important for ensuring sort of continuity in the career pipeline, which then allows them to have those leadership roles. The other thing that I think is really important, of course, is the gender pay gap. If women aren't being paid the same for the same work, then of course they are disincentivized from taking on leadership roles. And we actually know from research that the gender pay gap at the executive level and the board level exceeds that of the general workforce. And so it is actually worse at the top in terms of of uh, women being paid less for the same work. 
just related to what we've seen in the budget recently, um, I would say with business, not that I'm an expert, but the paid parental leave gap would also have a massive impact on women, surely in business mm. and the government changing the paid parental leave policy so that parents can decide for themselves how it's split mm-hmm. uh, further discourages men. Like research has shown that further discourages men from taking that paid parental leave. And what we really we really need to see to create you know that kind of equality is to kind of have a lo- uh, use it or lose it system. So, you know, each parent gets so much amount of paid parental leave each and then the rest gets split up. But for the women to get that maximum um, that they can access or the mothers to get that maximum they can access, the fathers have to take some of that as well. So it has mm. to be, have that kind of more even split, which results in not only better you know outcomes for the child, the family, the bonding, you know, fathers being out of father, but also allows women to further progress in their careers and also to have more superannuation. Yeah, and that you've got this situation where, you know, sort of in the second wave in the yeah, 70s, 80s, we're like, okay, well, we have childcare now and we have equal pay legislation. We've fixed it. We've fixed feminism. But what is quite stubborn about patriarchy is these cultural norms and these these ways of being that um, run through every facet of our lives. And so, yes, there is paid parental leave. And yes, it might be uh, available to both the mother and the father. But what is within that relationship or within that family, the norms and trends in how that labour or that household labour is split up um, really does exert influence rather than sort of the high level policy action. I'm interested when you said that the leaders we're seeing now in business, the women leaders we're seeing now, is a result of second wave feminism from like 30 years ago, like they're recipients of that. Since the second wave, we saw the 90s, which is very much like post-feminist girl power, individual neoliberal kind of nonsense. How has that had an impact? Like, does that mean that in 20 years time, from 30 years ago, which would be, you know, in 20 years time, would be women from the 90s kind of thing. Will we see that have a negative impact? Because in the 70s, we used to have like crashes in buildings where now childcare is unaffordable, inaccessible. You know, I guess it's changed mm-hmm. and not necessarily for the better. So, yeah, and, and I think that we've we've got some of the 90s sort of, there, there is a substantial amount of girl boss feminism in corporate Australia. You know, there is uh, a lot of lean in culture. And I think that the way that corporate women have presented themselves have, has certainly moved with that element of feminism. But I, I more mean the structural sort of conditions in terms of these women, while they may sort of embody girl boss feminism, they were the beneficiaries of the 70s. Uh, and, and 60s, allowing them into tertiary education, of allowing them to to work upon marriage and things like that. So even though they might not necessarily align with second wave feminism, they certainly are beneficiaries of it. I think potentially Australia has a specific issue when it comes to taking a long time to get with the times, essentially. Mm. And, and, it's, and it's sort of what you mentioned about the second wave produced results that you know childcare and things like that you mentioned and now we've fixed it and and Mm. and then that becomes entrenched and it's so hard for the needle to shift again Mm. and maybe we're at a time now where where that's possible but you look at other countries that we look up to in terms of democracies that have these progressive policies it's always you know easy to look to, to scandinavia for examples of progressive policies that provide paid parental leave in a progressive way What's going on in Australia? Why, why is it? And, and Blair, jump, feel free to jump in as well. 
Well, I think Blair could probably speak to the fact that Australia wasn't always a laggard in terms of progressive policies, that in terms of politics, we historically have been quite path-breaking, which um, I'm, I'm, mm-hmm. I'll let her uh, talk about. But I think that there is a certain amount of cultural cringe, specifically in the business world. So we are always looking to places like the UK and the US. And, and you can see that in media representations of like corporate women's issues of like, okay, well, what is, what's the US doing? What, what are people in Britain doing? And so I think that there is an element of cultural cringe that really does exert influence over the fact that we're not necessarily taking the lead on these things in the way that we could. Mm -hmm. But Yeah, how depressing. Looking towards the UK and the US is great examples. (laughs) (laughs) So many better countries, uh, you know, with workers' rights and women's rights, but... Oh, well, yeah. I mean, as Claire said, we were groundbreaking um, in terms of women's rights in certain areas. Like I'm an Adelaidean, so from South Australia, Uh we were the first state to not only win the right to vote, but also the right to stand in parliament. New New Zealand was the only country before to grant women the right to vote, but they were not allowed to stand in parliament for a little while after. So I think that was pretty cool. We, you know, have been quite groundbreaking in those areas as well, you know, as a sexual discrimination act in the in the 80s, you know, as well as like the office for women in the 70s. You know, we've seen these amazing, amazing things happen. We we're quite at the forefront of, you know, leading that um, that change uh, that would hopefully result in gender equality. But then we really lagged in the last 20 years. So we we're doing quite well, quite well. And then Howard happened. <laughs> <laughs> and that really had an impact because he very much um, was quite socially conservative and, uh, you know, very much uh, hailed the traditional family, you know, with mm. women staying at home, men going to the workplace, blah, blah, blah. And so a lot of the policies he's put in place over those 11 years of government um, really kind of stopped that trajectory we had um, with with gender equality. Not saying everything's Howard's fault, but that kind of was the turning point we can see in, in Australian politics, but also policies and also just workplaces. And then for the last 20 years or so, I think we've kind of been stagnating. And I think we very much could be in the position again to, to lead change, to to create, you know, a better parliament, to create um, policies that allow, you know, for both parents to stay at home with their children, paid parental leave, um, to have, you know, we had universal childcare for a sweet four months or so <laughs> uh, in 2020. And then that was ripped away. I mean, we, we saw that it worked. We saw that parents and children very much benefited from that. And research shows that it would put billions of dollars back into the economy if that was rolled out for good. But we seem quite resistant. We seem quite complacent, I think. Yeah, I'd like to jump in there um, and, you know, say to not discount the value of activism. So the reason that there are women on boards and the the, the reason that there are women in politics uh, in leadership roles is because of the work of um, activists to uh, fight for these issues. Um, The reason that uh, there are so many women on boards in Australia currently is that there was a lot of really targeted action throughout the 2000s um, and early 2010s specifically on this issue. They neglected other sorts of diversity. They neglected the environment. They, you know, neglected sort of human rights abuses or whatever, but they were really into women in leadership and that has resulted in a a massive increase in the number of women on those roles. So when we do have targeted action and we do have, you know, focus on a particular issue, lots of things can get done, but it does take that focus and that attention. Okay, let's move to something uh, we did touch on earlier, but um, one of the things that you mentioned in your paper, Claire, is the types of women Mm. in positions of leadership in the corporate world. Tell us about what you found and and the issues around it. Sure. So uh, I did a bit of a sort of life history approach of of corporate women um, over time. And 
uh, found that women largely conformed to the norms of the corporate sector, so i.e. the men in the corporate sector, and with themselves. And so they were largely um, white, able-bodied, um, straight, lived in very affluent inner city suburbs, uh, were generally trained in a very narrow set of professions, um, were generally in their 50s and 60s during the time of the sort of the benchmark, and overall hung out in the same social spaces, went to the same sorts of um, events, uh, and were very sort of homogenous group, not only amongst themselves, but with the other men in the community. And so it paints a very um, unrepresentative picture of, of both the spectrum of womanhood and also the stakeholders involved in these businesses. And it's more an indictment of corporate leadership in general, as well as corporate women uh, themselves. As I mentioned, the really long career pipeline and the nature of second wave feminism means that the people who have had access to these leadership roles have generally been um, those middle class white women that were targeted by second wave feminism. And so that, that has really flowed through to what we see in corporate leadership today. This seems, I mean, maybe naively of me, but it seems like it's it's a it's a very tricky thing to try to address. Blair, how are these sorts of things being addressed in politics? Yeah, it doesn't feel like it really is being addressed some days. Um, you know, especially when you look at uh, the news and you see that yet again more white MPs or white uh, candidates are being preselected for for seats in very diverse electorates, mm-hmm. um, whether they're white women or white men. I mean, it's great to get more women, obviously, in politics, but at the same time, is it really great when it's coming at, at a cost to to diverse women or diverse um, people who actually do represent their electorates? Because we do live in a very diverse Australia, but our politics does not represent that. So 98% of the House of Representatives, for example, is white. So I think a, a really good way, not only to get women in politics, but to get more diversity in politics is, and might be controversial, uh, to have a white man quota, essentially. You're allowed <laughs> to have so many white men and that's it. And then the rest can be filled with what, like with whoever, women, people of colour, um, women of colour, like, you know, just essentially people who represent the true diversity of Australia. Because otherwise, if you have you know gender quotas or if you have race quotas, then it's still putting the onus onto um, people who have been historically marginalised from politics. Mm. So I think putting the onus onto those who have predominantly privileged in politics or predominantly have gotten, you know, have had an easier time getting into politics because of uh, their gender and their race, you know, being a white man, thanks to the boys clubs, thanks to things like private schools, universities, you know, the elite social clubs that they are in, just like Claire said with business, you know, they hang around the same circles. Yeah, I would, um, I would sort of second the, that I, I sort of refer to this, you know, there's these two sides of things in terms of creating change and diversity in leadership oh. is the, the pipeline and the catalyst, right? And I think that that's a really important catalyst of actually making um, a point of uh, appointing people who are more diverse and do represent the stakeholders. I would say, though, that we do need to also address the pipeline for uh, marginalised folks that are not women um, or not mm-hmm. wealthy white women. So, for instance, we have a situation where people of um, Asian ethnicity are entering professions, the relevant professions, accounting, law, investment banking, at a similar rate or a greater rate than uh, any other ethnicity, and yet are really getting stuck in sort of middle management. And so that is a real restriction on their career pipeline that is then uh, flowing through to their appointment to leadership roles. And one of the problem, I think, or one of the sort of lightning bolts for quotas is it's like, well, what if there aren't adequately qualified, experienced people to be appointed to those quotas? And so we do need to address the structural barriers as well as making a commitment to appointing them once they are through those mm. structural barriers. But oftentimes, I mean, they are qualified. They have a lot of qualified people. And I think it could go down that slippery slope argument yeah. of, you know, just because 
we're trying to prioritize having you know more marginalized groups in these positions it's like oh they must inherently be underqualified and it's yeah, like yeah. well maybe those like privileged people who were there already are there because of their networks and their privileges maybe they're not even that good anyway um and if you look at politics it's like are the people in parliament house really the the best we got to offer in australia <laughs> or are we missing some people that might have those whether it's the qualities or the experience or the potential but they just don't have that leg up to help them get where they need to be mm. yeah that's a really good point and i think that um you know we, we certainly don't offer the same scrutiny to white men who are in these leadership roles are they suitably qualified and do they have the same you know we, we save that scrutiny for marginalized folks which itself mm-hmm. is not great um no so I, I definitely agree with you that uh what certainly that i've found about corporate women um as as a form of marginalization is that they are often way more qualified way more experienced than the average for their particular group to finish, I, I was reading some stuff you wrote recently, Blair, and one one thing that stood out to me was something, and I'll, I'll quote you here, sexism doesn't just one day magically disappear, rather it can only be dismantled through constant pressure and the actions of those who persevere. So to sort of finish off, we're in a time now where the spotlight is on equality coming from a lot of different places. Tell us a bit about your hopes for the future, where where you think this current movement might lead or where you hope it might lead and what you expect to come out of this current moment and the the type of pressure and perseverance that you talk about in that quote, Blair. Yeah, I wrote that quote because I, I get frustrated when people say, oh, it's 2020 or 2021 or whatever year we're in, it should be better by now. And it's like, it does like it, equality or change doesn't just happen because another year has passed. You know, the time, the clock does not have any, you know, um, significance or impact on on what happens. Things only ever happen or get better because people fight for it. People constantly push, constantly fight. And I think that's what we need to do. And we really saw that um, last year in terms of um, politics, Parliament House and the sexism that happened or the sexual harassment, bullying and assault that happened um, in that space which also shone a light on the harassment and, and abuse that women all around Australia experience. And, you know, we, we really need to get you know, to to get on top of that, to make everywhere a safer space for, for everyone to, to live and to work. I hope that last year ignited the fire in our bellies, you know, to, to continue that fight um, and to make us realise that we can't just sit back and hope for the best or hope for change, um, that we each can do our bit to to keep that fight going, to to keep the conversations going until we do see actual change. Claire, do you want to wrap it up uh, and and bring it back to business for this episode of Think Business Futures? Sure, sure. And I would echo um, Blair's sentiments that the people in power have no incentive to change unless we force them to. And so I think that there is lots of things that we as uh, members of the public or or sort of interested parties or stakeholders can do to... um, put pressure on businesses. And what I hope to see is not just pressure on increasing the number of women in leadership, but increasing the breadth of women in leadership and the fortunes of other marginalised folks in corporate leadership. And so there's ways that we can do that. Uh, Shareholder activism is really important. So get in touch with your super fund, go to AGMs if you you have the energy and and things like that, and also pressure regulators. So the uh, Australian Stock Exchange has been very successful in pressuring the business world to increase the number of women in leadership. We can do the same for other types of marginalised folks as well. 
Uh, and so I think that there are very actionable things that we can learn from the story of women in corporate leadership and in political leadership that we can apply to other sorts of marginalizations. Okay. Well, it's been fantastic. I really appreciate you both taking the time to have a chat. Uh, thank you so much, both Blair and Claire, for joining me today on Think Business Futures. Thank you so much. Thanks. Thank you for joining us for another episode of Think Business Futures. Thank you to my guests, Claire Wright and Blair Williams. You can listen and share this chat wherever you get your podcasts. Don't forget to subscribe to get Think Business Futures in your feed each week. And please support the show by leaving a review. I'm your host, Stefan Postuma, and I'll see you again somewhere in the world of business next week.